We're in Acts 21 this morning, headed to Acts 22. Got a lot of territory to cover. You're going to want a Bible to follow along. If you don't have your own, Bud will help you out. We are continuing our study through the footsteps of Paul. One thing I'm not sure, actually I know it didn't make it into announcements, registration for the women's retreat is still open. October 27, 28, 29, Debbie Bryson. If you don't know the name, Debbie and George Bryson spearheaded Calvary Chapel's outreach into Russia when the Iron Curtain fell, when the Berlin Wall came down and, and so forth. Um, they were overseeing church planting in Russia, and Debbie was a, a great part of that, a great encourager for the ladies, for the families, for the young people there. And uh, since then, she has been a tremendous encouragement to women all throughout the world, and we're looking forward to having her. And I get really self-conscious when we stretch a deadline like this because I know what you're thinking. You had that plan all along. This was just a scheme. You gave us a false deadline. We really didn't. Because I hate it when people do that to me. When I show up someplace at 1 o'clock and nobody's there, and I say, why is nobody there? And they say, well, because we wanted everyone here by 1.30, so we told them 1 o'clock, figuring that. I hate it when people do that to me. So I wouldn't do that to you. What happened was when, when Ann or Amy called and said, hey, here's our head count, they said, well, we don't need that for another month. And we said, what do you mean? And they said, what do you mean? What do we? You told us 60 days. Long silence. Okay, it was my first week. Turn out it's a 60-day cutoff for summer reservations when they're really busy. And we made the reservation during the summer, fall and winter. The demand is lower, so the reservation, it's 30 days. And she says, I'm so sorry. And obviously, we're sorry. But it's going to be great. And Debbie is wonderful. But all of that brings up another point. Pray, pray about who the Lord, now that we have this window, pray about who the Lord would have you invite. But it brings up another point, and the point is this. I don't do plots and conspiracies and schemes. I don't, I don't engineer them. I don't engage in them. I don't indulge in them. If you, if you know me, you know that I generally play my cards face up. And if for some reason I can't tell you something, I'll, I'll tell you. I, I, I'm sorry I can't tell you, or I can't tell you now, or I can't tell you, you know, here. I'm not much for secret meetings, for hidden agendas, you want to know what's going on, ask me. I don't do conspiracies. And here's the thing, I don't look for them either. Ben, I'm pinging a little bit. That doesn't mean I take everything at face value. I don't. I'm not foolish. I don't think I'm naive. I don't believe everything that I hear in the media. I don't believe that government has my best interests at heart. I don't think the government really holds the power in this world because the Bible says that they don't. The real power is behind the throne. But trying to figure out what's really going on, who actually has the power and what they plan to do with it, what's true, what's a lie, who really knows, whose agenda is to disrupt their agenda, and who's supposed, who we're supposed to believe doesn't have an agenda, that's somebody else's job. I don't need to spend my days figuring out what's true. I know what's true. The Word of God is true. As far as I'm concerned, everything else is up for grabs. And I mean everything. But there was one conspiracy story, I guess you have to call it a few years ago, that did get my attention. Usually when somebody comes to me and says, this group has this plot to carry out this scheme, and this is what we need to tell, my answer is usually the same. I'm glad God's still in control. 
Because he is, amen? amen. But, but a while back, a person managed to, to, to break down my resolve. The conversation started the way that most of them do. The government is lying to us. I said, I know. <laughs> they said, you do? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but I'm glad God is still in control. <laughs> no, 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 wait, 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 wait. Because we'd done this dance before. He says, you don't know this. This is, this is new, but, but there's a person who used to work for Ford Automotive, and he's invented a 100% efficient engine. The government has him locked down. He, he was snatched up in the middle of the night. They took him to some black site, and they've stolen all this technology. Okay. Well, don't you see energy is the key to the economy, and if we only need a fraction of the energy because he's basically invented a perpetual motion machine, all the money that goes to energy can now be spent on poverty and healthcare and art and creativity, and government is going to lose control over the people, so they have to keep this guy under wraps. And I couldn't help myself. I really wanted to say, praise God, he's still in control. Have you, have you had lunch? <laughs> I couldn't do it. I, couldn't. I, got as, I got as far as, praise God. Tell me the part again about the 100% efficient engine. He said, what's the problem? I said, the problem is it's impossible. We live in a broken world. Sin broke it. Romans 8.22, creation groans under the weight of corruption. Where did the corruption come from? Us. We broke the universe. And one feature of our broken universe is nothing is 100% efficient. Send power to a light bulb, as we're doing in like 100 different places in this room. Some of that power gets translated into light. Some of that power makes the bulb hot which is waste, which is not what you want, but it's unavoidable. That's the second law of thermodynamics, if you want to geek about it. Turn energy into work, some of the energy is always lost, which is why a nuclear power plant is only 35% efficient. It only captures 35% of the energy it produces. Coal, oil, natural gas, it's around 40-45%. The engine in your car theoretically could be 50%. Practically, it's more like 40 Again, thermodynamics, nothing is 100% efficient because it's a broken universe groaning under the weight of sin. That's what they want you to think. <laughs> That's what you get for listening, you know, to scientists. They're the people who tell you that evolution is true. No. See, the difference is thermodynamics is observable. It's also consistent with the Bible. Evolution is neither. It's not observable. Nobody has ever seen it. And, and it's contrary to what the Bible teaches. But you know another problem with evolution, interestingly enough? Thermodynamics! <laughs> the same laws of nature that tell me evolution isn't possible tell me that a 100% engine isn't either. Nothing in the universe is 100% efficient. No engine, no economy no computer, no natural process. That's part of what it is to live in a fallen world. My brother left in a bit of a huff. But he was excited when I called him the next day and told him I realized I was wrong. He said, good, we've got to get... No, 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 no. Not about that. But there is one power in the universe that actually is 100% efficient. It's the power of God redeeming 
in the life of a believer. And we know that because our one source of truth says so. The one source of truth, not subject to lies or corruption or hidden agendas, tells us God doesn't waste anything in your life or my life. He doesn't waste anything in the life of a believer. Okay, where do you get that, Patrick? It's not a secret. That's not hidden. It's all over God's word. Psalm 119, to pick a place. Starting in verse 89, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth and it abides. They continue this day according to your ordinances for all are your servants. Everything in this universe is subject to God. Nothing is there that he doesn't use for his purposes. God doesn't waste. Another way of saying that, God redeems. Sadness, sickness, wickedness, brokenness. He takes them and uses for his purposes. We see that places like Psalm 130, starting in verse 7. O Israel, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Abundant. The, the ESV translates that plenteous, which I've never heard, but I really like. Overflowing. It was Gail's birthday yesterday. Gail would say, abounding in mercy. More than enough. More than enough to redeem even idolatrous, rebellious, Jesus-rejecting Israel from all their sin. What Satan and the world and our own flesh intend for evil, God turns to good. That's Romans 8.28, and we know that, don't we? We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. God uses everything, even bad things. God wastes nothing, not even sin. He uses all things for his glory. See it again and again in the Word. We see it again and again in the lives of the people that we read about in the Word, like Paul. Which brings us to Acts 21 this morning. Acts 21, headed for Acts 22, where we're going to read Paul's testimony for the second time. There's going to be a third time eventually. This is the second time. But let's get a running start. We left off verse 36 of chapter 21, where Paul was being attacked by a mob. The commander of the Roman garrison in Jerusalem ordered him taken to the barracks. This is the Antonia Fortress adjacent the temple courtyard. Convenient that it's so close. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, can I speak to you? He replied, well, can you speak Greek? Which is a strange question because Paul was speaking Greek. But the commander was confused. He's trying to figure out what's happening. He asks, are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? That's random. Except Josephus, the historian who wrote at the end of the first century, fills us in on the backstory. In 54 AD, a false prophet of Egyptian heritage shows up, and he declares, at my command, the walls of Jerusalem will fall down, all of the Roman soldiers will be driven out, all of the Jewish collaborators will be put to death. Felix, governor of Judea at the time, personally leads a, a contingent of troops that breaks up the mob, but not very efficiently, so this, this Egyptian terrorist, along with several thousand people, kind of melt into the countryside. 
They're called assassins. I left this part out. Because before the revolt, before, before they, they, they announced this open revolt, they carried out a, a campaign of assassination against Jewish collaborators. Their MO was that they'd come up to somebody in the crowd, stab them from beneath their robes with a, with a long dagger, and then slip away. And their first victim, or at least their first victim of, of note, of renown, was Jonathan the high priest. Jonathan, son of Annas, who was the high priest in Jesus' day. So, so pull all of this together. The Roman commander is figuring out what, who, how is this crowd gone nuts? And the only thing he can think of is it must be that group of assassins. They're back. This is like three years later. But they've come back, and Paul must be the head of the group, and the Jewish people are still furious at the assassination of the high priest, and they're out for blood. Except no. Verse 39, Paul said, Yeah, I'm not Egyptian, I'm Jewish. From Tarsus, in fact, in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. So there you see Tarsus relative to Antioch and relative to Damascus and Jerusalem. Next slide, just to remind ourselves, Cilicia is the Roman province there along the coastline. Tarsus was the capital. And it was a center of education and culture and commerce and, and art and everything else that in Paul's day rivaled Athens or Alexandria. Paul wasn't, wasn't bragging. He was just speaking truth. It was a significant city. But his point is, I'm not the terrorist you're looking for. And, verse 39, I implore you, let me speak to the people. I say, what? The people who are trying to kill you, Paul. Yeah, I want to talk to them. They hate you and they want you dead. Yeah, I want to share the gospel with them. <laughs> this is Paul. So when he'd given him permission, the commander gave Paul permission, Paul stood on the stairs, he stood in the stairs leading up to the Antonia Fortress, and motioned with his hand to the people. And there was a great silence, and he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, probably the Aramaic language, but close enough, saying, brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. Brethren and fathers, what is Paul doing? He's trying to build a bridge. He's speaking their language, and he's addressing them as family. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. So Paul bought himself some time, and he used that time to say, You heard right, I'm indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, in Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel, in fact, taught according to the strictness of our father's law. Paul's name-dropping a little bit, because Gamaliel was universally respected. There's no one who didn't know that there was no better education in Paul's day than with Gamaliel. And I came here to study with him, Paul says, when I was 13. He pounded some law into me, but good. I devoted myself to studying the law, Judaism, with the best teacher on the planet. And as a result, still verse 3, because that was my upbringing, I was as zealous toward God as you are today. But he's not done. Paul says, you want proof? Here's proof. I persecuted this way, this so-called church, to the death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women. That doesn't sound like much to us, but was very rare in Paul's day for women to be imprisoned. He's saying, yeah, I was hardcore. I threw men and women in prison in the name of the law. I killed people in the name of the law. I chased people all the way to Damascus to bring them back and kill them or throw them in prison in the name of the law. And, and if you don't believe me, ask the high priest. The high priest bears me witness, verse 5. And all of the council of elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren. You can ask them. They were there. 
I went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. For what? Punished for what? For daring to say that Jesus was the Messiah. And here's, here's Paul's point. He hasn't made it yet, but he's, he's set the table. He's, he's, he's lined up what he's going to say next. Because what he just said was, I was as jealous for the law as any of you, and, and more zealous than most of you. You can ask around. I killed people for saying that Jesus was God. What's he about to tell them next? He's about to tell them, I was as zealous as anybody standing here, and I was wrong. And if I could be wrong, you've got to consider the possibility that maybe, maybe you're wrong too. That's where Paul is headed. And verse 6, he pivots to go there. He's telling a story. It happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon. You see the, the route on the map there. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. So there's a detail that we don't get in the first account of, of Paul's conversion, that it was noon and that the light was really bright because it was brighter than the noonday sun. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, which was Paul's name in those days, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And to persecute my people is to persecute me, and to call the gospel blasphemy is to deny the truth about me. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what should I do, Lord? Which is always the right response, by the way. If you don't know how to pray, pray that. Lord, what do I do here? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then, when I got there, a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all of the Jews dealt, uh, dwelt there, came to me. Also in obedience to the Lord. We don't talk enough about Ananias. We talk a lot about Paul in this section of Acts. Oh, Paul's devotion. Oh, Paul's commitment to the gospel. He's sharing the gospel with people who hate him and want him dead. But what did Ananias do? God says, hey, I want you to talk to Paul. He says, sure. I've heard about this guy, God. He's got a license to kill Christians, and he uses it. But at God's urging, he goes anyway. Not to take anything away from the faith of Paul, but Let's, let's pause and acknowledge the faith of Ananias. And when he found Paul, still verse 13, he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, Saul Paul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked at him, and hey, my eyes worked. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you'll be his witness to all men of what you've seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And this is where people who want to tell us that baptism is essential for salvation get really excited and say, see, see, verse 16 proves that you have to be baptized to be saved and you can't be saved if you're not baptized. And it might sound that way in the English, but it really doesn't say that in the Greek. A closer translation is probably having arisen and having had your sins washed off by calling on the name of the Lord, be baptized. But see, while people are all quarreling about that, they miss what Paul just said. Really, they miss what Paul just quoted Ananias as saying. Paul is saying to this crowd of angry Jewish people, 
that Ananias said to him, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. Just one in the New King James, righteous one in the English Standard Version, which is a title of God, the righteous one. And we see that places like Proverbs 21.12, the righteous one observes the house of the wicked. He throws the wicked down to ruin. Isaiah 24.16, we were there not that long ago on Wednesdays. From the ends of the earth we hear songs of praise of glory to the righteous one. And see, you and I can just zoom right past this, but Paul's listeners would not have missed it. Paul just quoted Ananias saying that he was a Jew who thinks that Jesus is God. And if he's quoting him, obviously Paul thinks so too. Things go downhill from here. Paul gets a little bit more of his story out. Verse 17, Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, him, Jesus, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. Which is another detail we don't get in Acts 9. Acts 9, it sounds like it's the threats of violence that drove Jesus out, but it was actually the threats of violence coupled with the word of the Lord himself. Why does Paul add this detail? Maybe because it's happening again. He's sharing his testimony, and again, Jewish listeners aren't listening, aren't receiving. So I said, Lord, this is still 30 years earlier. I know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you, and when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. I should be the perfect person to share the gospel in Jerusalem. I was more Jewish than any of them. More zealous than all of them. More wrong about Jesus than anyone. Makes sense. Good theory. Jesus knew better, and he had plans for Paul that were bigger. He said to me, depart, for I'll send you far from here to the Gentiles. And that's the ministry that Paul has been doing for the last 30 years. But 30 years later, the Jews in Jerusalem still don't want to hear what Paul has to say. Paul speaking of Jesus as Messiah was bad enough. Paul speaking of Jesus as God was heinous. Paul suggesting that the Gentiles might be saved. Why are we still listening to this guy? They listened to him until this word, Gentiles. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. Not, not get him off the stairs. Get him off the planet. He's not fit to live. Kill him. Kill him now. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust in the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. Now we know that torture is reliable. Uh, I'm sorry, unreliable. You torture somebody enough, they'll confess to anything. The Roman commander didn't know that. He was determined to get to the bottom of this. And he didn't understand anything that Paul just said because he was speaking Aramaic. But he knew Paul spoke Greek. So let's torture him and make him speak some Greek so we can figure out what's happening. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, just one small question before we start with you know, the scourging and stuff. Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who's a Roman and uncondemned? We saw this before in Acts 16, right? Not only was it not lawful to scourge a Roman citizen, you couldn't even bind a Roman citizen without due process, and they've done that twice already. When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Dad, be careful. 
this guy's a Roman. The commander came and said to him, so you're a Roman? And Paul said, yes. And the commander says, me too. And I obtained the citizenship with a large sum. Paul said, well, I was born a citizen. There were three ways to obtain citizenship in Paul's day. One was by decree, as, as, as an acknowledgement of some favor, some service that uh, someone had done the empire. The second was by birth. Not the place of birth, but the, but the birth parents. If the father was a citizen, then you're a citizen. The third way was by bribe. That began under Claudius. If you knew the right official and, and got them the right sum of money, they could arrange for you to, to be granted citizenship. So the Roman commander is saying, wow, well, he's saying one of two things. Either, wow, you're wealthier than you look because I know what it costs to become a citizen. Or he's saying, wow, citizenship used to really cost. It used to be a thing. I guess they're giving it away for free now if you're a citizen. E either way. Immediately, those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he bound him. Because depending on how well-connected Paul was, binding a citizen without due process could mean the commander would lose his rank, could lose his freedom, he could be thrown in jail, or he could lose his life. But his curiosity still isn't satisfied, so the next day, verse 30, because he still wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds, commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear, and brought Paul down and set him before them. Which is where we'll continue next week. But let's go back to where we began this morning. One episode in the life of Paul. And in just this one episode, Paul was almost killed twice. From here, Paul's going to appear before the Sanhedrin, who would love to vote him dead. After that, he had survives another plot against his life, an assassination attempt by the Jews. He's held in custody by Felix, governor of Judea, for two years, dodges another assassination plot under Festus. He's sent to Rome by Agrippa, has a shipwreck on the way. When he finally gets there, he's placed under house arrest for two years, released but then arrested again, thrown into prison this time, and eventually executed. Tell me again how God works all things out for good? Well, let's back up, and let's look more carefully at this one episode of Paul's life. Go back to verse 35 of chapter 21. Mob wants to tear Paul limb from limb. Roman centurion, uh, or Roman commander, rather, takes Paul into custody. He's thinking that he's captured an Egyptian terrorist. Question. If there hadn't been a terrorist three or four years earlier, threatening, posturing, assassinating, doing bad stuff... Would the commander have taken such a personal interest in Paul's situation? Would the commander have saved Paul's life? Let's go bigger picture. If Rome hadn't occupied Jerusalem, which was universally regarded by the inhabitants of Jerusalem as a bad thing, as a wicked, evil thing, if Rome hadn't established a military presence immediately adjacent the temple and the courtyard, does the commander even get a chance to take a personal interest? Obviously not. He wouldn't be there. No Jew thought Roman occupation was a good thing, but if it wasn't for the presence of those Roman troops, Paul's killed by the mob. Not the second time, the first time. Here's another one. Paul's born a Roman citizen. How does that happen? Paul's Jewish. We don't know, but we know something happened. Either his father or his grandfather was granted citizenship. What happens if they're not? 
Paul is scourged and quite possibly dies. Remember what scourging is. Long strips of leather with with metal or bone or or glass or or sharp rocks tied into them. And, and, And that is used to flay someone's skin until it's rent open, until it's rendered down to hamburger. People often died under scourging. Good Friday, we often talk about the fact that it's a miracle Jesus actually survived to be nailed on the cross. Now, admittedly, none of those three things happened to Paul per se. They kind of happened around Paul in the background in the, in, the, in the days and years leading up to Paul showing up in Jerusalem. They benefited Paul, but they didn't involve him directly. We call that providence. Providence is the hand of God who's sovereign over all creation, arranging people and events and circumstances to further his divine will and to bless his people. So clearly providence is is operating here. But what about the things that happened to Paul? What about the very personal stuff, his crimes, his blindness, the threats of violence against him, the angry mob that came against him? Is that just collateral damage? Is this the end justifies the mean? It doesn't really matter what happens to who as long as God gets what he wants? Not at all. Let's look again, and, and let's listen to what Paul says. Chapter 22, verse 4, Paul says, I persecuted the way, Christians, to the death. I killed people, Paul says. When we think about Paul in in, in this time of his life, what what stands out is, oh, he was the guy holding the coats while other guys threw rocks at Stephen's head. Verse 4, Paul says, no, it was more. That might have been how it started, but I was a murderer. Okay, how does that work out for good? First, let's be clear, God using something is not the same as God ordaining something or orchestrating something. This was Paul's idea. But because Paul did what he did, because he exercised his free will to do evil, God could still redeem it. How? Look at the end of verse 3. God takes Paul and uses his testimony to give the crowd the best chance they'll ever have to hear the gospel from someone who looks and sounds like them. I was as zealous toward God as you are. And if I was wrong, misguided, deceived, don't you have to consider the possibility that maybe you are too? Paul killed people, but God redeemed it. He sent Paul to use that story, the story about being murderous against the church of God to try to reach his fellow murderers. Let's use another example. Acts 22.11, Paul's blinded. I couldn't see for the glory of the, the light. Had to be led by the hand to Damascus. I'm sure Paul did not think that was good. Which, yes, I know Robbie is sitting right over there. God redeems. And being blinded is, it doesn't mean that someone can't be a teacher or a preacher or an advocate or a worship leader because Ravi is all of those things and more. But Paul, one moment earlier, just a moment before, was in control of his destiny and other people's destiny. He was large and in charge, and then God humbled him and took it away. What did God use to give Paul back his sight? Ananias. Who is Ananias? Verse 12, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony. Isn't it interesting? And by interesting, I mean not a coincidence. The first person that Paul sees after he's saved. Literally, the first person he sees as a born-again believer 
is someone who was convinced they could be Jewish and still be a Christ follower. Someone who understood that Christ didn't come to destroy the law but fulfill the law. If Paul hadn't met Ananias as soon as he did, how long would it have taken him to grasp that? I think he would have eventually gotten there, but how, how long would it have taken? How, how long would he have struggled over that? How many days or weeks or even months of ministry might have been lost if the first person that he met hadn't been a devout man according to the law? And now bring it full circle. Would he have even met that devout man? Would he have even met Ananias if he hadn't been blinded? Let's do another one. Acts twenty-two eighteen. Jesus says, Paul, you got to get out of town. Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly. We know from the parallel passage in chapter 9, the Jews were plotting to kill him. Something would be kind of a theme of Paul's life. I don't usually think of death threats as good things. I've had a couple of them. I didn't enjoy them. But let's ask ourselves, what did those death threats accomplish in Paul's life? Acts 22.18, Jesus says, it's time to get out of town. The Jews want to kill you. Paul says, but Jesus... I'm the perfect guy to reach them. I can't leave now. My ministry's here. Until Jesus says again, verse 21, Paul makes Jesus repeat himself. No, you really need to leave. Depart, for I'll send you far from here to the Gentiles. Question, what if there's not an actual threat? What happens if people aren't trying to kill him? Does Paul obey Jesus and leave? Or does he keep arguing? Does the lack of an actual threat lead him to believe Jesus is wrong and he really needs to stay and keep evangelizing Jerusalem? And if he stays, does he ever get to Tarsus? And if he doesn't get to Tarsus, does he ever get to Antioch for the revival that was going on there? If he never gets to Antioch, is he ever sent out to Galatia? Does he ever make it to Philippi and Corinth and Ephesus and everywhere else he's been ministering for the last three decades? Let's do one more. Beginning of the chapter, end of the chapter, angry mob. More than angry. Homicidal, both times. I'm going to file that under, not good. But what happens because of it? That angry mob sets into motion a chain of events that end with Paul getting to share the gospel with the Sanhedrin, that's next chapter, with two governors of the region, that's the next two chapters, with the king of Judea, that's the chapter after that, and ultimately with Nero, emperor of Rome. Back in Acts 9, verse 15, God says to Ananias, speaking of Paul, he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, to bear my name before kings, to bear my name before the children of Israel. Apart from what we read this morning, how does that happen? How does Paul get an audience with the Sanhedrin, with two governors, with a king, with an emperor? I don't know. And I don't need to know because he did. And he did because God doesn't waste. He takes the painful things, the frightening things, the damaging, evil things of this world, uses them to accomplish his will, uses them to do good things. How do we get in on that? What do we need to do to participate in that? To benefit from it? In a sense, we don't have to do anything. Hopefully, you've already done it, because God has promised to work all things out for good. For who? To those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. That's not a covenant. That's a promise. That's not, okay, I'll do this if you do that. 
No, this is, this is a unilateral promise. How do we get on it? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Love him more than the world. Love him more than our sin. Accept him as Lord and Savior. If you've done that, that promise is for you. If you haven't done that, you're outside of that promise. But that can change as soon as you want it to, as soon as you're ready for it to, as soon as you decide that you want to. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, would you talk to me after the service? We don't need to do anything more than that to be the beneficiaries of this awesome promise. But that said, looking at those, I I, I, want to look at those examples one more time. Because I think that there are things we can do to cooperate with God. To let as much of our life as possible be part of the good that he's doing. The redemption that he's bringing. And to have our lives as little as possible be the not good part of the world that he needs to redeem. What am I talking about? Look again. First example, Paul was a cold-blooded killer, right? How did Paul cooperate with God in redeeming the evil, because it was evil, that he did? Well, first of all, he didn't deny it. He didn't deny it, didn't pretend that it didn't happen, didn't try to minimize it. But he also didn't collapse under the weight of it. When Jesus said that he died to remove guilt and shame, Paul believed him. And because he believed him, instead of living his life overwhelmed by the greatness of his sin, sin that I can never escape from, sin that I can never atone for, no, Paul served and spoke continually in awe of the greatness of the forgiveness that he found at the cross. The greatness of God's grace, the greatness of the gospel, the greatness and the goodness of God. Paul cooperated with God, how? By resting in forgiveness. Second example. Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, believes on him, surrenders his life to him, just one problem he can't see. How does Paul cooperate with God here? What he doesn't do, again, what what we don't do is as important as what we do do. What he doesn't do, he doesn't bargain, he doesn't negotiate. God, I'll keep following you, just one thing, we got to do something about the eyeballs. He doesn't bargain and he doesn't get bitter when God doesn't immediately remove the blindness. He sticks to his initial commitment, Acts 9.6. What do you want me to do? God says, go to Damascus, look up this guy Ananias. Okay, Lord. Blindness had to be scary. For someone used to being in charge, it had to be humbling. For someone who just moments earlier held the power of life and death in his hand, there had to be temptation to push back. I don't think you know who I am. (laughs) Instead, Paul just surrendered. He realized it was God he was dealing with. And if something had happened, God allowed it. And if God had allowed it, God would redeem it. If God had allowed it, God would use it for something good. What did Paul do to cooperate with God? He rested in God's sovereignty. He said, God, you're God and I'm not. When Paul, here's number three, when Paul was starting his ministry in Jerusalem, back in Acts 9, threats coming against him. Jesus said, it's time to leave town. Paul asked a question. Jesus, are you sure this makes sense? I really think I could be really good here. And when Jesus said, no, you need to leave and you need to leave fast. 
Paul said, okay. It's okay to ask. God, am I hearing you right? It's okay to clarify. God, am I understanding this correctly? But when he did, when he was sure that what Jesus was saying is what he was hearing, he left. He didn't insist that Jesus explain it to him. He didn't insist that ministry make sense before he was obedient in it. He realized that if God was God, then his ways are above our ways, and they won't always make sense. And sometimes we need to step out in faith. How did Paul cooperate? He rested in God's wisdom. Knew it was greater than his. Fourth example. Paul's confronted by the angry mob twice in one day. And the first time, Paul had to know in that moment, okay, so I'm not getting to Spain anytime soon. I mean, he's been planning this trip for years. Wrote to the Romans about it. Hey, I'm going to see you soon on my way to Spain. But again, Paul didn't get angry, didn't get bitter, didn't take out his disappointment with God on the people around him. What I think he did, and I can't prove it, but what I think he did is pray, God, fill me afresh with your spirit. Why do I think that? From what we just read. The part where he doesn't get angry and doesn't get bitter. And and instead, he asks to speak to the crowd that hates him and wants him dead. And when he speaks to that crowd, 22 verse 1, what does he say? First words out of his mouth, brethren and fathers. He looked at the people trying to kill him, and he didn't see enemies. He said he, he saw people taken captive by the enemy to do his will. And he loved them. The people who hated him, he loved them. Why do I think Paul, maybe he didn't pray for a fresh filling. Maybe he was already overflowing with the Spirit. But I know that he was filled with the Spirit. Why? Because the fruit of the Spirit is love. As evidenced by joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul had it in spades. The mob wants his head, and he just wants to love him. Take it a step further. Go, go back a step. What brought Paul to Jerusalem in the first place? Love. He was bringing the love offering from the Gentile churches to help out the church in Jerusalem that was being persecuted. The whole reason he was in town was love. What brought Paul to the temple that day? Think back to last week. It was love. Hey, there's a group of Jews who are zealous for the law, and they've heard, Paul, that you're teaching things about grace that are contrary to the law. And Paul says, okay, I want to try to stand in that gap. I want to try to bridge these two thoughts. What brought Paul to the, to the temple? Love. How did Paul cooperate with God? Having been redeemed, how did he participate in God's ongoing plan to redeem? By setting aside all of his needs and wants and expectations and loving the people in front of him. He rested in God's spirit and let it overflow. How do we cooperate with God? By doing all those same things. It's not an exhaustive list, it's not a comprehensive list, but it's a pretty good place to start. How do we cooperate with God and and, and God who desires to work all things out for good? We let go of guilt and shame and rest in forgiveness. Instead of carrying the great weight of our sin, we marvel at the great grace we've been blessed by. How do we cooperate with God? By not bailing when things get hard. Resting in God's sovereignty. Nothing happens without God's permission. And if with his permission, his purpose, and his purposes are always good. 
How do we cooperate with God? By not bailing when things don't make sense. Because if we, already, if we always understood everything that God was doing, then why he wouldn't be God. If God made perfect sense to us, he'd be equal to us, and why would we worship him? We cooperate with God by resting in his wisdom. How do we cooperate with God? By loving the people in front of us. By resting in the Spirit and allowing the fruit of the Spirit to overflow us and love the people in front of us, whether they're loving us or not. Lord, we thank you that you're in control always and in everything. We thank you for your promises, your wisdom, your sovereignty, your grace. Oh, your grace, Lord. We rejoice in it. We have moments of remembering it. And and then it slips away. Lord, we want to rejoice on on an ongoing basis. We want to abide in it. It's the reason we live, Lord. Pray that it would be the reason we live and serve. Pray that it would influence everything we do. Everything we think, everything we are. Teach us to abide, to rest, to know. And from that place to overflow. Part of your plan to work things out for good. In my mind. Known and loved by you Before I took a breath When I doubted, Lord, remind me I'm wonderfully made You're an artist and a potter I'm the canvas and the clay You make all things work together For my future And for my good, you make all things work together for your glory and for your name. There's a I see clearly now, I know nothing has been wasted, no failures or mistakes. You're an artist and a potter, I'm the canvas and the clay. You make all things work together for my future. And for
I'm wonderfully made. You're an artist and a potter. I'm the canvas and the clay. And I know nothing has been wasted. No failures or mistakes. You're an artist and a potter. I'm the canvas and the clay. sharing the message, it occurs to me that there are some people who are ready to hear it, needing to hear it because of what is waiting around the corner that we can't see. And there are people who are in the middle of some really heavy things, and it can be hard. If you've, if you've, if you've ever gone through an illness or experienced a loss and have somebody put their arm around you, and said, God works all things out for good. There, there's, there's a point where that just isn't helpful. <laughs> or you're not ready to, it might be true, and, and I couldn't care less right now. Because <laughs> right now I just hurt. Johnny Erickson Tata, many of you know, uh, was paralyzed in a diving accident as a young woman. Speaks eloquently and powerfully about how God redeems um, one, of, one of my favorite Johnny lines, God sometimes allows that which he hates to accomplish that which he loves. But she's the first to admit it took her a while to accept that and even longer to embrace it and longer still to have the boldness to share it. So I want to pray for, for people right now Who, who are in those hard places and maybe not ready to hear that God works things out for good. They, they will in time. One of the best things my pastor ever said to me, he said, think of the worst things that have ever happened in your life. Give it a year, two years, five years, ten years. You will see God bring beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning, and it's true. 
I've never found an example where it isn't true, but sometimes it needs that time. So Lord, we pray for people that are in the middle of the battle, in the middle of the struggle, surrounded by the angry mob, suddenly struck down, laid low. We lift up Jim's mom battling the infection up in Topeka. Lord, thank you that your grace is extending her life and giving not just her, but all of Jim's extended family an opportunity to hear the gospel again. Lord, we pray that your love would overcome everything that the enemy is mounting against it. We pray for Joe, also contending with an infection, and and the hits just keep on coming for that brother. Lord, thank you that his joy is not diminished. Thank you that that Margie remains the fierce intercessor she's always been, continue to move in their lives, Lord. We pray for those battling cancer. We pray for our brother Robbie. We pray for our brother Dave, Dave having surgery this Thursday even. Lord, would you move in accordance with your mercy. Lord, thank you that you are merciful. Thank you that you brought Mark successfully through surgery this week, Dakota successfully through surgery just Friday. Thank you for little Attica and, and that Destiny and Elijah and, and Attica are all doing well. Father, you know that there's brothers and sisters in the room right now dealing with autoimmune disorders. And, and, and with that, it's not just the, the symptoms, it's the not knowing and it's the not understanding and it's the trial and the error of treatment. It's exhausting. Lord, be their strength, be their peace. Supply wisdom, supply rest. Lord, I pray for a brother who's been waiting and waiting and waiting to see a specialist that he needs to get uh, understanding, that he can get a course of treatment, that he can find relief from symptoms. Lord, I pray that you'd open that door. Pray for our brother Roger having surgery in a couple weeks. Pray that that all goes well with that hip replacement. Father, there's a family dear to this fellowship that's in the throes of divorce. Lord, all we can ask is, is that you would be present for, for that family collectively, for each of them individually, for the children especially. Lord, as they cry out to you, I pray that you'd show yourself strong. That this wouldn't be the thing that, that, that causes them to distance themselves from you, but the thing that causes them to draw close to you. We pray for prodigals, prodigal children, prodigal parents, brothers, sisters, dear friends, people that once worshipped alongside of us in this room and are now out in the world. Lord, you will allow them the things that they think that they want to bring them to the end of themselves. Lord, we pray that you would give them everything that it takes to break them and nothing more. And we know that you will because that's who you are. Lord, in all of these situations and all of those unnamed, you know each one. Your love is real for each person. Your mercy is new every morning. Your grace, what can we say about your grace? Lord, abound as you teach us to abide. In your holy name, amen.